I'll be honest, fellas, this Bloister Cult episode is sounding great, but I really could use a little more meticulously researched background information about the cowbell, delivered in a smooth, refreshing baritone. Producer Mike? The cowbell is a metallic percussion instrument that originated as an agricultural tool for the purpose of determining the location of free-roaming cattle. Bells of this type contained a clapper inside the bell, which would ring when its wearer, i.e. the cow, would move. Clappered cowbells can sometimes be heard in the symphonies of Gustav Mahler, who employed them in order to evoke idyllic images of the countryside. Cowbells without clappers are instead struck with a stick, and can most often be heard in Latin American and West African music, but are also sometimes used by rock bands such as Blue Oyster Cult, who used it to memorable effect in their hit, open parenthesis, don't fear, close parenthesis, the Reaper. Unfortunately, the Blue Oyster Cult album we are discussing today, 1974's Secret Treaties, does not feature the instrument. This is Discord and Rhyme! And welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter at DiscordPod, and you can also look us up on Facebook. Our website, DiscordPod.com, features show notes and older episodes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast app, and by email at DiscordPod.com slash contact. I'm Rich Bunnell, and yes, that is THE Rich Bunnell. And I'm joined today by... Mike DeFabio, Phil Maddox, and Dan Watkins. And this week, I want to start by thanking our newest Patreon donors, Jackie and Jeff DeFabio, otherwise known as Mike's parents. Yes, thank you very much, Mike's parents, for your generosity. A, a decent proportion of our donations come from the Discord and Rhyme extended family, and we're very touched by their support. If any other listeners, including people who aren't family members, like what you hear and feel like throwing some change in the tip jar, you can visit patreon.com slash discord pod, and we have some cool rewards there. So today's host, Phil, puts his pants on just like the rest of you, one leg at a time. Except once his pants are on, he records gold podcast episodes. What album have you chosen, Phil? Why, I have selected Secret Treaties by Blue Oyster Cult. Is that the one with Don't Fear the Reaper on it? It is not the one with Don't Fear the Reaper on it. I'm out. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I signed up for the Don't Fear the Reaper one, Phil. Now tell us about Secret Treaties. Why did you pick it? Well, I largely picked it because... Well, first of all, I've always loved this album. That's always, you know, one good reason to pick it. And another is that I think over the years, like Blue Oyster Cult kind of get a bum rap. Like a lot of people like just know them because of their big hits, which are, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper, Burning for You, maybe Godzilla. I hear Godzilla every now and then. And I think these days, like increasingly many people who are like younger, probably only know them because of the more cowbell sketch from SNL. Which, that really shouldn't be the case. Like, I've seen Blue Oyster Cult, like, dismissed as, like, a one-hit wonder or a two-hit wonder. But they're actually a really interesting band with an interesting sound and a bunch of great albums to their name. 
of all their albums, uh, Secret Treaties is probably my favorite. It's the one that came out right before Agents of Fortune, which is better known as the one with Don't Fear the Reaper on it, which uh, that album also had a pretty significant change in sound from their first three albums. This one is the peak of their early period, in my opinion. Lots of great hard rock riffs, some weird as hell lyrics, and a totally unique atmosphere. It's well loved by the band's hardcore fans, but it doesn't really have any hits on it, and it's pretty unknown outside of people who are actually BOC fans. I, in my opinion, that needs to change, and I'm hoping that I can convince some of our listeners to check this album out. So, Phil, how are you inducted into the Blue Oyster Cult? So like most people uh, growing up, I heard Burnin' For You and Don't Fear the Reaper on the radio constantly. Honestly, neither of them ever really did anything for me at the time. I like, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper a lot now, and I still I'm still not crazy about burning for you, but that's neither here nor there. But I just uh didn't uh really get into them. Like I didn't know they were there was more to them than, you know, their couple of radio hits, and it wasn't like, you know, there was a lot of people playing them. So, anyway, when I was in high school, I was a big Metallica fan. Still am a big Metallica fan, even though their last several albums have not been the greatest. And I picked up their um, album Garage Incorporated, which uh, was a double disc, uh, one disc of new covers and one disc that was a compilation of old covers. And there was a song on there called Astronomy that I had never heard of. Like, this is an incredible song. Like, who is this? And I looked it up in the liner notes, and sure enough, it's Blue Oyster Cult. I'm like, I had no idea this band sounded like this. So I went out and bought Secret Treaties, which had a very bad original CD issue with, like, terrible sound that thankfully has been fixed in later editions, and just absolutely loved it. And then I picked up Agents of Fortune, which I also liked, though not as much. And then their first couple albums, which I also like, and I eventually got a box set like on CD. That's all of their albums. So at this point, I'm pretty thoroughly a big fan of Blue Oyster Cult, but I probably would have never gotten into them if it weren't for that Metallica covers album. Dan, you never get to go first. Why don't you tell us how you got into Blue Oyster Cult? Well, we got our first uh, family CD player Christmas of 1991, and uh among the batch of kind of starter CDs my mom got for my dad included uh, the On Flame with Rock and Roll, Blue Oyster Cult, Cheapo kind of single disc compilation album. And uh, since we only had a handful of CDs, it got an awful lot of play in our house. And um, because of that, it 
kind of got a very early indoctrination into BOC and I liked it, but it wasn't until a few years later when I kind of got into my dad's final collection and just really got into Agents of Fortune and Tyranny and Mutation. Um, just played those to death like the summer after sixth grade or something like that, like most kids in 1995 did. Um but it really wasn't until like high school and I actually rounded out the rest of the first trilogy of albums where I bought the debut and uh, secret uh, secret treaties. But, you know, I kind of don't go super deep into their catalog. Uh, they're a band I really like, despite some of their cheesier and kind of goofier leanings, especially after 1981 or so. But, uh, you know, one of the first gifts my wife bought me when we first started dating was a Blue Oyster Cult car license plate holder emblazoned with the blue with the BOC logo and Don't Fear the Reaper on it. I did not put it on my car, but um, it was an early sign that I had found the right one. Aww. Aww. <laughs> Mike, how about BOC and the... Well, I'm just like everybody else. The first Blue Oyster Cult song I ever heard was Don't Fear the Reaper. And part of the reason I love that cowbell sketch so much is that I noticed that cowbell right away the first time I heard it. Because when I was a kid, I had this little rinky-dink keyboard with these little drum pads on it, and one of them made a cowbell sound. And I always thought, why would anybody use that? So when I <laughs> I heard Don't Fear the Reaper on the radio one day on the on the way to school, it immediately made sense. Like, that, oh, that's what that sounds for. Yeah, I always thought it was just so funny that somebody made a whole this whole uh, cultural phenomenon out of that out of that cowbell sound. Also, it's just a great song, and it was only a, a matter of time before I decided to get into Blue Oyster Cult proper. And it was then that I discovered, as most of their listeners probably do, that not a single other Blue Oyster Cult song sounds anything like "Don't Fear the Reaper." Seriously, not a one. <laughs> not one. And for a long time, this album, uh, this album right here we're talking about, was the only one of theirs I liked straight through from start to finish. It was the only one where I, it felt like every single song had something to offer. And that's not true. I'll, each each of their first four albums, uh, every song has something to offer. But uh, I still like this one more, even though I like all of them now. All of their first four, I should say. I'm not I'm not going to stick up for Club Ninja or anything. <laughs> So is it Blue Oyster Cult or Blue Oyster Cult, or is it just like a Motorhead case where the umlaut is just decorative? <laughs> I think it's a decorative umlaut. I think it's the uh, the first ever decorative umlaut, actually. Yeah, I believe. Wow, us. pioneers. Yeah, I think their producer Sandy Perlman suggested they do it because it would make them look more mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> rock critics invented the rock umlaut, but I'm getting we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll talk about Sandy Perlman in a second. So BOC is a band where I defer to my dad's fandom, like. Uh, much like Devo uh, a few episodes ago. Uh, he's been into them since the 70s and has seen them five times in concert, three times in the 70s, once in the 90s, uh, and once just a few years ago in, at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. I went with him to the 90s show, which was at the Edge Nightclub in, in Palo Alto, California, and was my fourth concert ever. Uh, my third concert, They Might Be Giants, of course, was actually at the same venue, which doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Um, anyway, I went to the show instead of going to a high school debate competition that night, which honestly feels like the pivot point in my life where I truly chose music over arguing with anyone ever. <laughs> I've never been that extensively into Blue Oyster Cult, and in fact, got a lot more into them 
in preparing for this episode, but of course I also know the Saturday Night Live sketch, which I watched the night it premiered, and as a budding music fan in my teens, it felt personally directed at me. I was like, what is going on? How is this sketch happening? <laughs> so, like, seems like everybody's, like, got it. A lot of people got into Blue Oyster Cult here from, like, their dad, which, like, my dad hates Blue huh. Oyster Cult. Huh. So... I definitely did not get into Blue Oyster Cult from him. I had to get into them despite him. <laughs> he would make fun of me for liking Blue Oyster Cult. I like how much of your musical taste is defiance against your parents, Phil. Right, but it's not like I'm listening to, I was listening to like, you know, crazy off the wall stuff. I was listening to like Rush and Yes and Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> it's not like you were getting into Venom. Yeah, it's not like Teenage Rebellion. It's like, uh, yeah, they disagree with you on an aesthetic basis. It's uh, you're on the same playing field. Right. Yeah, I did eventually get into Venom. But, you know, <laughs> maybe we'll talk about them later. Yeah, let's start talking about Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, Phil, why don't you tell us about them? Oyster Cult formed in 1967 as Soft White Underbelly. They were formed by uh, guitarist Donald Roser, who was later known by the stage name Buck Dharma, uh, drummer Albert Bouchard, keyboardist um, Alan Lanier, singer Les Brownstein, and bassist Andrew Winters. They were managed by producer and critic Sandy Perlman, who heavily influenced their direction and wrote a great deal of the band's lyrics. I don't think Blue Oyster Cult were really like a manufactured band, but uh, their producer really wanted to manage a band, and these guys are the people he ended up with. And he, you know, got them a lot of, you know, attention because he was a relatively famous critic, and he could get their feet in the door in a lot of places. So they signed to Electra Records, where they recorded an album in 1968, but uh, it never got released. And they lost their singer, Les Brownstein, who left the band after the album was recorded. And the album got shelved and, as far as I know, has never been officially released. After Brownstein's departure, Eric Bloom joined as a second guitar player and lead singer, though the band would eventually allow all of their members to sing lead from time to time. The band didn't really... I guess Bloom was probably the closest they had to a lead singer, although, again, everybody sang. The band then changed their name to the Stalk Forest Group and recorded another album's worth of material for Elektra, this, too, was shelved, though it was released in limited quantities in 2001 as St. Cecilia, the Electra recordings. I haven't heard these, but a couple of these tracks later surfaced as bonus tracks on uh, reissues of their early albums. Around this time, um, Andrew Winters got sacked and was replaced by Joe Bouchard, Albert's brother, which uh, solidified the lineup into the classic Blue Oyster Cult lineup, the one that was responsible for most of their early albums, or not most of their early albums, all of their early albums. They were a pretty solid lineup for quite a while. They finally changed their name to Blue Oyster Cult in 1971. This name was selected by Sandy Perlman and was a reference to his Imaginos writings, which I'll talk about a bit more later. Their self-titled debut was released in 1972. 
It featured a combination of blistering hard rock, psychedelic rock, and some truly bizarre lyrics. get a bit farther out on their next two albums, but the album was a strong statement of intent. So this album marked the beginning of what their fans called their black and white period, which was named after the stark color choices on the covers of their first three LPs. Tyranny and Mutation followed in 1973 and further solidified their sound. Lots of interesting stuff on that record, too. But it was 1974 when the band released what many people would consider to be the peak of this era. Some people, myself included, would consider it the peak of their entire career, Secret Treaties. It pulled together all the threads from their previous two albums into a tight, coherent whole. The band would move on to greater commercial success on their next studio LP, Agents of Fortune. But in my opinion, they never reached a higher artistic level than they did on Secret Treaties. Let's get to the album. Uh, Okay, let's start with track one, Career of Evil. That song is a strong statement of intent to start off this album, making a career of evil, which is Blue Oyster Cult's modus operandi. So, yeah, this song is awesome. It has like just a really cool riff. It's a little bit unsettling. It's not like crazy, but it's like non-standard. It doesn't really sound normal. Like it, do- it takes little twists that you don't really expect. Um, I also just love how deeply cartoonish the lyrics are because the band is singing about being evil but like there's lyrics in there about how like he's going to spend your ransom money but still keep your sheep <laughs> like he's he stole someone's sheep held them for ransom and then kept them <laughs> also he's gonna steal your satellite who are you carmen san diego right <laughs> 
he's gonna run off with the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or something. <laughs> yeah, and then the Heart of Texas and the Mason Dixon line and the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> Steal the beans from Lima. But yeah, this one's just yeah, it's fantastic. The lyrics are actually written by a pre-horses Patty Smith, who was uh, dating Blue Oyster Cult member Alan Lanier at the time. So a lot of people associate her with like, you know, being like, you know, an art rock, like, you know, punk pioneer. But then people kind of dismiss uh, a lot of people dismiss Blue Oyster Cult as just kind of being like a dopey 70s rock band. But they were actually pretty intertwined at the time because Lanier also appeared on Horses by Patti Smith. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Um, I, but he's not on it a lot, but he's there. So, yeah, this is, in my opinion, a really strong opener that, you know, really, you know, flows nicely into the next track, which I'll get to once we finish talking about this one. Yeah, this one has more swagger than the other songs on the album to me, uh, largely because of Patti Smith. It it honestly would have been like an interesting alternate history if Smith actually had become lead singer because like she's definitely a stronger, pure vocalist than anyone in the band, but they would have been a completely different band. It's also interesting reading contemporary journalism uh, about the band that refers to, uh, quote, a New York poet named Patti Smith. Hmm, Uh, I mean, obviously, she wasn't famous yet at the time, but it's just neat seeing that kind of thing. Yeah, she was just some person. Well, you do get to hear her do uh, at least, I guess, a co-vocal spot on uh, the Vera Gemini on uh, Agents of Fortune. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Great song. Yeah, it's a great song, yeah. Yeah, I like how this is just kind of has a campy spooky vibe to it uh (laughs) and that little descending riff is just really cool it's kind of you know eerie but also a little kind of cartoony kind of like the vocals well like they know they know this is silly right yeah Yeah. like they're 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 having fun (laughs) it's a real kind of faux menacing thing where they're it sounds like it's wearing a dracula cape Yes. (laughs) It's well put. (laughs) So the thing about uh, putting on a Blue Oyster Cult album for the first time, if you've only ever heard Don't Fear the Reaper and Burnin' for You, is that both those songs are sung by the pleasantly smooth-voiced Buck Dharma, who didn't really sing very many of their songs. So what you're more likely to be greeted with on a Blue Oyster Cult album is the somewhat uh, hairier voice of Eric Bloom. And he can take a little getting used to. And also, th- this band has a reputation for having been, like, the American Black Sabbath in the early days. <laughs> and if that's the case, then why is the keyboard louder than the guitars? What kind of band is this? <laughs> I mean, there's even there's even a compilation of songs from the, the, the early black and white period that's called Career of Evil, The Metal Years. <laughs> that gives you the, the completely wrong impression yeah, this is like, this is 1974 metal though. I guess it's. Uh... I guess, but it's still. <laughs> but even still, like, like Sabbath were doing like Master of Reality or yeah. whatever around this yeah. time, and like, like this, uh, which I mean, just in terms of pure heaviness, like would b- blows Blue Oyster Cult off the map. Well, apparently the very early incarnations of BOC, I don't know if this was soft white underbelly or otherwise, but they had the but they played up the joke a lot more explicitly, like to the point where they resembled something like Queen. Hmm. So like dialing it back a bit was what resulted in their distinctive sound. Hmm. Yeah. Like it's kinda of, it's kind of half a joke. Yeah. Yeah, everything with Blue Oyster Cult, you can never really tell how much they're kidding, but I'll get into that more. Anyway, this this song in particular, once you get used to what Blue Oyster Cult don't sound like, you can start to appreciate what they do sound like. And the opening riff of this song is this 
a really great example of the sort of thing they do. It, it starts out like a pretty standard rock riff, and then that weird descending just jumps in. And they do that kind of thing a lot, where they take something really kind of basic, and then they twist it just a little until it's something strange. They're a strange band. They're not, they're not weird. They're not Captain Beefheart or anything. Just strange. But yeah, another kind of unusual thing they do on this one is just the dual lead vocals of um, Eric Bloom and I believe um, Bu- um, Albert Bouchard. Yeah. Which uh, I believe the single version, which is included as a bonus track on the CD, um, actually drops Bouchard's vocals altogether and just leaves you with Eric Bloom. Yeah, I knew the single version for years from that compilation. Hearing it here was like kind of a shock because it's got like a verse is missing in the, the single version. And I think it's slightly faster, too. Yeah. They also censor some of the lyrics in the single yeah. version, not because there's like swear words in them, but because of like, you know, adult themes, as they would say. <laughs> too damn evil. Yeah. <laughs> a whole career's worth. OK, let's move on to track number two, Subhuman. Oops. In all the hustle and bustle of post-production, I must have dropped in a clip of Subhuman by Throbbing Gristle by mistake. <laughs> okay, here's the right one. this song mm-hmm. has i just love that bass line under it with like the great kind of mysterious keyboards this one's fantastic one of my favorite songs on the album if you're paying attention to the words here you might quickly realize they make no sense and there's a reason for that so this is as good a place as any for me to talk about uh the imaginos project back in the 60s their producer sandy perlman who wrote the lyrics to this song, um, wrote a whole bunch of like stuff about like space aliens influencing history and causing World War II, this crazy sci-fi nonsense that he called The Soft Doctrines of Imaginos, which was originally going to be kind of a loose theme for this album, but then they decided not to do that. But they just left two of the themed songs on the record, but without any kind of context, they don't really make any sense. So later on, it would make a little bit more sense, because in 1988, 
a slightly different version of Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, the details are way too complicated to get into here. Recorded a full album version of Imaginos, which included remakes of two songs from this album, This and Astronomy. Subhuman was retitled to Blue Oyster Cult on that album, which was apparently the original title of it, but they decided they didn't want to have a song called Blue Oyster Cult on their album by Blue Oyster Cult. I don't want to get too deep into it because um, we're not talking about it here and because I'm a positive person in general, but Imaginos is one of the worst albums I've ever heard. Uh, dreadful production, terrible arrangements, and worst of all, they managed to completely ruin the two excellent songs from this album that they decided to revive. I wanted subhuman to sound like sticks. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what would be great? If we took this song and removed everything good about it. Right. Let's make sure there's no groove. Let's make it, you know, completely stodgy and with no swing. Uh, it, it's bad. Uh, we'll talk a little <laughs> bit more about uh, the other song that they ruined on Imaginos later. But this version, you know, the one on Secret Treaties is just amazing. Like, with its weird, like, you know, lyrics about, like, the ladies, fish, and gentlemen and everything. It's got, it kind of has, like, an aquatic kind of sound to it. And the song, like, the music kind of makes it feel aquatic. The song, like, you can kind of feel the ebb and flow of the waves, like, in the way this song is constructed. It's also got an absolutely wonderful, like, laid-back, mysterious-sounding solo. It's just superb. Yeah, something I really like about Blue Oyster Cult is the way they sometimes make their songs sound like they're coming from somewhere underground. This song sounds like it's being played somewhere that you can only get to by going through some kind of secret stone passageway lit by torches. And I'm also really into Albert Bouchard's drumming on this song. He does all these subtle little ghost 16th notes on the kick that I would kill a man to be able to play. And also, I, I just really like the phrase, ladies, fish, and gentlemen. Yeah, I agree with what you said, Mike. This is kind of like you're tunneling deeper into the cavern of the album. It's, yeah. it's a great track, too, because this is kind of like level two. Like, da -da 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 -da. Right. Da -da 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 -da. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And much like Mario, it has a great transition. Uh, in Mario's case, he walks into a pipe, one of the first cutscenes in video games. <laughs> uh, and in this case, like, there's just a wonderful, like, instant transition that we played earlier. Like, it's uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. This is really an album where it's it's not just one song after another. It's you feel like you're you're going deeper into it and and discovering these these, you know, hidden rooms or whatever. It's 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 an album to explore and this this song really gives you that feeling. As for the lyrics, <laughs> they're interesting. I I don't know, like the lyrics on the album cover a lot of ground. We have three lyricists in the first place. And uh, by the way, I like picturing them as uh, Patti Smith, uh, Sandy Perlman and Richard Meltzer, who we'll talk about later, like just all like huddled in a corner, like just coming up with lyrics together while Blue Oyster Cult like serves as their band vessel or something. 
Right. Because, yeah, the yeah, none of the lyricists on this album are actually band members, unless you want to count Sandy Perlman, since he was their producer. Yeah. Uh, but even Perlman himself was is trying to do so many things with his lyrics on this album. And in this case, uh, he's like, I, I guess this is kind of like the, the X-Files mythology episodes, but good. <laughs> um, and Perlman is both like taking kind of taking the piss like he knows this is ridiculous. But he's also like trying to carry out something really layered and complex with this band, at least at this point. Yeah, it's it's too good for them to be like for it to be a joke. But also, they don't really mean it. Uh, where where exactly are we? Like, certainly in early Blue Oyster Cult, it's really hard to tell, like, you know, where the jokes begin and where seriousness yeah. begins. And later albums, it became uh, a little bit uh, more directly on the nose. Mm-hmm. But in the early albums, it's real hard to tell. Now, are you telling me that She's As Beautiful As A Foot is not <laughs> straightforward and... Uh... Clear cut enough for you. Yeah. Or Joan Crawford has risen from the grave. I like that song. <laughs> it is incredibly cheesy, but I like it. I mean, it's a pretty great punchline. <laughs> no, when I, when, I, when I bought this album, I'd already was very familiar with Career of Evil. So when that segue came into this song, I was just kind of like, ooh, that's nice. Uh, but uh, I really can't add a whole lot else to what you guys have said. But uh, I guess I'll take us as a chance to talk about just how great Buck Darm is as a guitar player. And like his solo here is just, it kind of shows how he's a very tasteful guitar player. Like he has a way of having very memorable phrases that aren't too flashy, but just they really kind of like stick out and become just little, little miniature hooks that kind of stick with you. Yeah. Yeah. He does that a lot. This is actually one of my favorite lead guitar albums ever. Like, He's not a flashy player, but like every note matters and like every mm-hmm. song that has a solo, like the solo is extremely cool. Should we talk yeah. about how it's a stun guitar? What is the stun guitar? <laughs> the stun guitar. I, I think it's Eric Bloom that plays stun guitar. Right? I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just I think that's just what they call rhythm guitar. Yeah. I think because it's, they're cool. I think it might just be a Star Trek reference, honestly, like literally. <laughs> it's not just be, it's not just me being a Trekkie. No, he's, he set his guitar for stun. Yeah, he said they set their guitars that. to stun and then just shot lasers into people's eyes instead. <laughs> Steve Vai was credited for stunt guitar for Frank Zappa, but that's because he was wanky and noodly. Yeah. Okay, now that we're done with the de facto Blue Easter Cult theme song, let's go on to track three, Dominance and Submission, which isn't about what you think it's about, I promise. <laughs> Get your mind out of the gutter. There's no way like you, you can figure out from the title what it's about. It's, Sandy Pearlman, I swear. (laughs) Not a cowbell, right? I don't think so, but I don't know what it is. Is it a woodblock? Might be a woodblock.
So yeah, that song rules. Like, one of my favorites on the album. Just an absolutely killer riff. Like, kick-ass and headbanging, but like slightly off-kilter. Like, just enough to keep it interesting. It's just awesome. It's good enough that the Ramones took the same basic riff, sped it up, and came up with the punk classic, We're a Happy Family. Yeah, pretty similar riff. I would say Blue Oyster Cult certainly had, like, some influence on punk rock. Like, I don't know if this song was directly taken from it. They could have come up with the riff kind of independently, and they're not exactly the same. But I think a lot of their, like, guitar playing on songs like this probably had, you know, a strong influence on punk rock. Oh, I think it did, yeah. So the lyrics on this song seem pretty abstract, but according to their producer-slash-lyricist Sandy Perlman... They're actually about hearing the Beatles on the radio for the first time. He said in an interview, quote, In 1963, I was being driven back from a New Year's Eve party when the Beatles came over the airwaves for the first time. It seems so revolutionary in terms of consciousness that what is represented was a new factor in mass culture, and 63 was the watershed. The song reflects the parallelism between revolutionary consciousness in the mass and how it affects the individual. The sublimated heat of rock and roll so long suppressed and driven underground, was being revealed and no one could stop it. See, that's what I meant. Dominance and submission about the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> it's obvious, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I love this one. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of like uh, like what Phil said, like it, it, it rocks on like a primal gut level, but it just has these little weird twists to it that set it apart from sounding like just Deep Purple or somebody. And I just love Albert Bouchard's weird voice. Like, he just sounds so greasy and odd. <laughs> he's actually one of, my, one of my favorite vocalists in the band just because he's so distinctive. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this song, it's fantastic. This song is so good. I think it's my favorite Blue Oyster Cult song. It's got everything. It's got that kooky main riff that takes this little unexpected left turn that makes you sort of tilt your head like a confused dog the first time they play it, but then it makes perfect sense the second time it comes around. It's got Albert Pouchard on lead vocals. He's full of personality. He's like the weird uncle of the band or something. <laughs> it's got that ripping guitar solo at the end. That's not even my favorite part of the song. My favorite part of the song is in the middle because you get not just a guitar solo, you get a guitar trio playing this three-part riff that gets stuck in my head all the time. And that leads into just the coolest, strangest three-part call and response section <laughs> I've ever heard. It just builds and builds until you think the song can't even take any more tension. And then it keeps going and they, they just keep building it up. 
finally they rip it up and it's just the greatest release. The whole song is so cool. The Beatles deserve nothing less. Yeah, agreed. And some of the or some of Perlman's articles for Crawdaddy, the magazine he wrote for, are available online through Paste, who own their archives. And it's a uh, uh, there are two critics who write on this album, and uh, it's interesting seeing how their personalities and their approach to criticism come through in their BOC lyrics. Like, uh, in Perlman's case, he's a very thorough, meticulous writer, and this comes through in this, like, ridiculous case study of a single moment of his life that all of us as rock <laughs> fans have, have also experienced. Uh, except in my case, it would be like eating saltines on the couch, listening to Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> <laughs> Not nearly as interesting. But uh, I mean, like you, you get like a, in Times Square, people do the polka. Uh, it's like a, it's a funny image, but it's also like a convoluted reference to the rock and roll backbeat that could only come from a rock critic. <laughs> like it's a, a, I love the lyrics on this album. They're just so zany and all over the place. I'm, I, I mean, I figure y'all y'all will talk about how amazing all the music is, but just reading this album is just a trip. Oh yeah, the lyrics on this album are all very cool. Yeah, you can tell they were written by by people who wanted to to write rock songs that said things they hadn't heard in any song before. They were big Lovecraft guys, right? Yeah, yeah definitely they were. Yeah, or at least Perlman was. Okay, if we're done with uh, that loving Beatles tribute, let's go on to track four, ME262. my dad we were doing this episode he told me he specifically wants to know what me 262 is about well dad <laughs> it's about nazis <laughs> yeah the funny the funny thing is it's the most straightforward sounding song on the album probably so of course because it's the most straightforward song on the album uh blue oyster cult had to mess it up by making it a song glorifying the me 262 a german world war ii fighter plane <laughs> The song is sung from the perspective of a German fighter pilot shooting down allied pilots. So um, the band are not Nazi sympathizers. Uh, they wrote this song because they thought it would be an interesting topic or because they were, you know, they kind of thought they were being naughty. <laughs> but uh, you can't really be too surprised that some people took it the wrong way. They also put um, an ME-262 on the album cover. Uh, which caused them some issues in Germany where they're really not fond of people putting Nazi warplanes on album covers. <laughs> also, there's a spooky skeleton in the cockpit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> spooky, spooky. <laughs> Just thought you should know that. <laughs> so subject matter aside, this is probably my least favorite song on the album, which is really a compliment towards this album because this song is still really good. It's got some unexpected turns in it. It's got like just a great, fast, catchy riff. It's, you know, 
it's good stuff. It doesn't do anything super interesting like some of the other songs on you know this album do. But if you're at the point where like if I were in a band and this was the weak point on my LP, like I would be unbelievably jazzed. A weak point. This song's great. Uh, <laughs> I think it's one of my favorites on the album. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, musically it is pretty straightforward, but like just. I think what it is, I love Tyranny Mutation, and this, I think, kind of calls back that same sort of thrashy kind of style that I like off of that album. Uh, and it's just, it, it, yeah, again, like it has these little turns to it that just kind of keep kind of moving the song in different directions. And like the kind of breakdown where the sound effects come in has like a long sustained chords. It's, uh, God, yeah, I, I love this one. It's just... Uh, really lively and uh you know as far as the lyrics with eric bloom being jewish i don't judge it too harshly it's not like the dead boys <laughs> flirting with nazis <laughs> and, and Pearl, sandy perlman too yeah yeah so it's you know it, it's it's a little on the edge there but uh i give him a pass for it yeah I'm, I'm a little bit more willing to give people a pass like on recordings like this from the 70s when like it was kind of understood that that people were just you know kind of making jokes, yeah. As opposed to nowadays, where you kind of don't know anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little it's a hairier issue now. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. This this is just this is boc having fun being bad. Mm-hmm. You know, they they told you right at the top of the album that they were making a career of evil, and now look, now they're all BFF with Hitler. <laughs> Uh, and and the ME262 is really kind of an interesting example of the kind of uh, effect technology can have on major world events. And that ties in a little to the other songs on the album that uh, have to do with the course of history being shaped by these clandestine forces that are not of this earth. But, I mean, really, this is just a really fun glam rock song. It it shows they could write a really good, straightforward rock song. And the, their other songs weren't them trying to write a, a straightforward rock song and failing they, they they could they could do that if they wanted to and it it sounds sort of like uh what you'd get if you if uh ziggy stardust had the political mindset of the thin white dude <laughs> i like that <laughs> yeah yeah th- th- that's a good point like this is definitely blue oyster cult at their most glammy yeah yeah Cl- it's the closest they ever came to glam rock oh no searching for denise no <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as I mentioned, this is one of my dad's favorites, and he always brings it up. So it's it, it's sort of the single of the album for me, despite like the subject matter not really allowing for that. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's and it's one of my favorites. It's a good old rollicking time. I, I mean, I don't want to like you know excuse the lyrics, but it it was a different time. But that brings side one to a close. Let's start side two with track five. Um, Side two, track five. That's mixing my vinyl and CD. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Play it's it like mixing a metaphor. Anyway, uh, song five, KG Cretans. it all. 
this sucker just moves. It's got that really cool, blazing fast, like two note up and down riff. Just a total shot of adrenaline. A great way to start off side two. Some awesome solos too. This is a song that I would probably play for a person who thought they didn't like Blue Oyster Cult. Like if they thought like they're like a boring radio rock band or whatever, like this is a track I'd play for them because I can't imagine somebody being to like in a fast, exciting, hard rock music and not liking this one. Now, the lyrics uh, written by rock critic Richard Meltzer basically amount to a bunch of nonsense. Uh, sample lyric, repeating taste of high-heeled shoe, an eel is waiting under the train, being chased around by the neighbor's cat, well, it's so lonely in the state of Maine. Oh, it's about Will. (laughs) (laughs) But but really, who cares when the music's this good? Yeah, I want to talk about Richard Meltzer. He only throws in a couple tracks on this album, but he was critical to their pre-Bloyster Cult career in particular, and he actually lived with the band on and off, uh, kind of couch surfing with them. And he was a really interesting figure, and honestly, basically the person who created rock criticism as we know it. Like, I, I mean, in terms of actually analyzing the music instead of reprinting press releases. Like, you know, that whole, Aretha is great, Aretha is sensational. <laughs> like, that was transcribed from an actual review and that's what reviews were like at the time there were nothing but like adulation and just whatever the record labels wanted um and so like Meltzer was a philosophy major who wanted to level the playing field and talk about all rock in the same like academic reverential terms that people at the time only reserved for the Beatles right Hmm. it's around the time that like rock music criticism kind of became an art form into itself yeah, he and Perlman were really transitional figures in rock in rock music. I recommend like reading reading up on both of them. Uh, like besides like being involved in Blue Easter Cult, which I very much approve of, uh, they're fascinating figures in their own right. Yeah, this is the one song on the album that doesn't always stick with me. Um, like if I have the album track listen in front of me, it's always the one I'm kind of like, oh yeah, that song. Um, and you know, I like it when it's on, but it's it's the one that like if taken out of the album wouldn't really stand out to me. But it's it's just a great performance. Yeah, it's really energetic and it, it keeps the energy going from the last two rockers. So I really can't fault it for anything. Um, but it's just, you know, if, if, if I got to pick a week when this is it for me, I think. This always used to be my least favorite song on the album. And I, I guess it still is, but uh, not by much. I, particularly recently, I've, I've really grown to, to like it a lot more. It's just so darn kooky. <laughs> and the music and the lyrics really match each other perfectly. I mean, those, the lyrics that, that Phil quoted there, I mean, that's, that's almost, that's almost something out of Ween or something. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and I love songs where you don't have to think about the deep meaning behind it all, and you can just enjoy the sound of words being played with. And it's interesting to me that the words were written by this very influential figure in rock criticism, because the idea of rock as art was really less than 10 years old when this album came out. And this album kind of comes at rock music from both directions at once. Like, it's art, but it's not. They're kidding, but they're not. What are you supposed to make of this band? Maybe we're not meant to know. So this, like, this discussion is kind of prompting me to think about, like, something I've talked about on this podcast before, which is 
when you have albums where like everybody seems to have like different opinions of what the highlights are like mm, yeah this is absolutely like, one this is the forbidden places of the boc catalog. yeah because <laughs> like this is a this is one of my favorite songs on this album i guess like i still use an ipod classic that i go running with all the time and it you know tracks how often you listen to songs and i guess because like i'm out running all the time this is actually the song from this album that's racked up the most plays for me <laughs> Oh, yeah, because I can see that. It'd be a good running song. Because so, sure. I need something to kind of pump me up to get going. Like this, that awesome, like, you know, killer riff is just, you know, gets you moving. But yeah, there's so much on this stuff. This isn't one of the reasons I wanted to do this album and I would recommend it, which is that I think, you know, I would almost guarantee that, you know, if you're the kind of person who would be listening to this podcast, then you're going to find something on this record that you really like. Yeah, and I just want to finish out this song by saying that, um, that Richard Meltzer, in an interview, theorized that he had no songs on Agents of Fortune because he felt up Buck Dharma's mom while dancing with her at Buck Dharma's wedding. <laughs> wow. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he's a... Wow. He, yeah, quite a figure. Um, anyway, <laughs> on that note, let's go on to another Richard Meltzer song. Track six, Harvester of Eyes. some people uh, try to interpret this song as kind of like a criticism of television, like Frank Zappa's I'm the Slime or something like that. But I kind of think they're trying to read too much into it because the song really just sounds like it's about a guy who likes to collect people's eyeballs. I'm pretty sure that's all there is. So it's another weird one lyrically, Harvester of Eyes. It's literally about a guy who harvests people's eyes. <laughs> Well, I've read that it's apparently about Abe Fortas, who was a member of the Supreme Court. And you can learn a lot about it if you read Robert Caro's Years of Lyndon Johnson series. And Ben Marlin will be very happy that I just plugged that. But yeah, uh, it, like apparently Abe Fortas during like one of his Senate confirmation hearings, like uh, mentioned having like ocular TB, which prompted the line, I'm the eye man of TV with my ocular TB. And I don't know. It, the song doesn't seem to have anything actually to do with Abe Fortas. It just like uses that as a platform for like a person who goes around and like steals eyes from trash cans and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Where you find them. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was just it was a jumping off point. It provided a vi it kind of provided a mental image for Meltzer and then he just kind of went from there. But musically, this is another one of the more straightforward songs on this album. Just kind of a groove. It's got a really cool groove, but a kind of basic groove. There's also like a double guitar like solo, like a la Iron Maiden in the middle of it, which is pretty awesome. Also has a kind of a long, like eerie sounding coda at the end, which like really draws it to a close like really well. 
it, it's not one of the highlights of the album for me, but that's really just because the album is so dang good because most rock bands would kill for a song this cool. Yeah, I mean, it is it is one of the more straightforward and thus uh, less easy to talk about songs on the album, but it's definitely the greatest boogie rocker about a guy who likes to steal <laughs> people's eyeballs. It's got that locked up. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's all that much competition, but it's, you know, out of the ones I've heard, at least. Yeah, I actually like how this one is just kind of rooted in a pretty basic blues shuffle, but then goes in all these weird, weird directions. And um, the song is just so weird. Like, it's, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's also rare that you get a hard rock song that has the word peepers in it. <laughs> you don't hear many of those. Um but uh, yeah, that coda is just so eerie. I, I can't hear a word of what Eric Bloom is saying, but it sounds really cool and creepy. <laughs> uh, but the thing that I actually just kind of noticed recently is how the last two chords of the song are, uh, sound like a direct callback to Teen Archer off of Tyranny Mutation, which to me is interesting because it means that the first three albums are all linked because Tyranny Mutation begins with a remake of a song from the debut. So conceptual continuity <laughs> continues. Here, Fido. <laughs> All I have to add about this song that I didn't already say about Richard Meltzer earlier is that he wrote these lyrics, and then he also later wrote the lyrics, I'm burning, I'm burning, I'm burning for you. Um, you can see the disillusionment of the 70s written all over that. But but this is the kind of thing where if, if a person be like, yeah, I don't like generic rock bands like Blue Oyster Cult, you can say like, huh, how about this song about a guy who likes to steal eyeballs? <laughs> and that's I mean that's what I was saying before it's like oh I've never heard a song about a guy who steals people's eyes before why don't I write one of those okay but if we're done here I want to include a clip of the segue into the next song Flaming Telepaths because it's really cool yes let's pump that in right now transition like i always liked albums that have like cool transitions between the songs like the moody blues always did the moody blues songs like always kind of flowed together and it kind of made the album seem a little bit more coherent there you go and i love how that happens here it really makes it feel like it's an album instead of just a bunch of songs yeah it's a really albumy album well i've opened up my veins too many times and the poison's in my heart and in my mind in my pride I'm after rebellion I'll settle for lies Is it any wonder that my mind's on fire Imprisoned by the blood of what to do So first, like a quick word about that transition, which apparently 
they just found that recording somewhere. Wow. Hmm. And just threw it on the record and decided that it was cool like and left it. <laughs> so it's just on the record now as a transition between two songs. I love that. That works. So this song itself is really cool. Like has a has that dark, mysterious sound that I love from these guys. It's got a great melody. It's got some awesome solos towards the end. It's got a great build. Really, what's not to like here? As for the lyrics on this one uh, by Sandy Perlman, uh, Eric Bloom described them thusly in an interview. Sandy Perlman wrote the lyrics. It's one of those sci-fi impenetrable lyrics. He had a lot of influence from Lovecraft and a variety of sci-fi and fantasy influences. So I have to admit, I've never gotten too much meaning out of words like, yes, I know the secrets of the iron and mind. Their trinity acts, a mineral fire. Yes, I know the secrets of the circuitry mind. It's a flaming wonder telepath. Hey, but they sure fit the music well enough. Um, Albert Bouchard has said that the song's supposed to be something of a joke, hence the the jokes on you lyrics. The song sure sounds serious to me, though. Like, if there's trying to be funny, then they're being funny in a very, very subtle way. I guess it really ties into how good Blue Oyster Cult were at this point at kind of writing that line between being a serious band and being a joke band or whatever it is they're trying to do. But again, it all works here. Like the song is like appropriately epic, like and is a really good lead in to the final track. I have seen uh, some interpretations of these lyrics that suggest that it's about a scientist who's experimented on himself too much and has caused horrific side effects which uh, seems about as reasonable an explanation as any. Well, I think the key line is, is is it any wonder that my joke's an iron and the joke's on you? It's basically Perlman uh, just telling the listener that all of this is ridiculous. And if you take it seriously, then it's your own fault. Like, uh, he's saying that the joke is blunt. And that image is great. Like, sort of like a Monty Python foot coming down on the listener, except it's the band's (laughs) blunt sense of humor. It's like the glass onion of the album. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and this is uh, this is the non-hit that I remember the band playing when I saw them when I was 14, uh, so it stuck with me. The only other thing I remember from the show is the guy from the opening act, like, asking the crowd, who here likes pot? And me thinking, like, <gasps> <laughs> I can't believe he said that. Yeah, it sounded so scandalous. <laughs> well, this is one of my very favorites on the album. I'm not sure if they were using lasers in their stage show at the time they wrote this song, but you can just see the lasers in this song especially during that righteous synthesizer solo in the middle. And 1974 was the the year the Ramones formed, so big, bombastic, dry ice machine, all caps, rock songs like this would be out of fashion pretty soon. But I just live for songs like this. And if the lyrics are about God knows what, then so much the better. They they almost seem like they were written exquisite cadaver style with everybody throwing in a line or two without ever seeing the whole thing. I know that's not how it happened at all, but it's what I like to imagine. They they started using the lasers during the Agents of Fortune tour, I believe. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's a whole story in itself. Like, apparently the Carter administration, like, sent uh, officers from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to assess whether lasers were healthy. They're not. A spinal tap taught us. <laughs> <laughs> this was actually kind of there will be no encores. <laughs> this was actually kind of a sleeper for me. Somehow this album, this song didn't hit me the first 
several times I listened to it and then yeah it, it kind of revealed itself over a few listens where it's yeah it's up there one of my favorite BOC songs it's um really the the sequencing of these last two songs in the album is really smart because this is just the perfect build up to what's coming next and um it's it's kind of nice too to have a nice little spotlight for Alan Lanier where he gets a pretty good little synth driven track complete with a nice solo and there's actually an interesting cover of this song a psychedelic neo folk band espers did a 10 minute cover of this in 2005 and it ports pretty well to their general mood sounds like the wicker man (laughs) my question about the espers is i'm wondering if anybody ever refined them into magic i was waiting for that one i admit (laughs) yeah it was coming (laughs) one of the coolest things about this song is how it ends which is that it doesn't fade out or build towards like you know a big rock finale or whatever it just there's a cool solo and it just gets louder and it just builds and builds like into a big finale but then it just cuts dead and turns into the intro to the next song. And the contrast of those two songs like slamming into each other like that is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I want Yushi so heavy. Right. I just love how that just slams to a close and just goes right into like, you know, the piano and drum shuffle at the beginning of astronomy. It's it's a really great use of like a really jarring tape edit used intentionally. Yep. It's the kind of thing where, you know, we've, we're kind of moving back in the direction of a more of a singles market these days. Like people care more about singles now, like than yeah. they do albums, but one of the reasons I always liked albums was because of cool stuff like this, where people could, you know, use contrast like that to really create something that's more than the sum of the parts. Because I like both of yeah. these songs better, largely because of how well they flow. Yeah, you could you could have you could have songs that didn't really exist independently of each other. They kind of the transition between the two is kind of the point. OK, I know that we've covered some monster albums recently, but this one only has eight tracks. So we're at the end. This is track eight. Astronomy. Come, Susie, dear, let's take a walk just out there upon the beach. I know you'll soon be married and you want to know where winds come from. Well, it's never said at all on the map that can read. Behind the clock back there, you know, at the four winds bar.
fade out. No. <laughs> so, so I'm laying my cards right on the table here. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's absolutely stunning and probably the single greatest track that Blue Oyster Cult ever recorded. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, Metallica's cover of this on their Garage Incorporated album was what convinced me that Blue Oyster Cult were worth checking out in the first place. But Metallica's version pales in comparison with Blue Oyster Cult's original. The way it slowly builds to its first chorus, the breathtakingly good guitar solo, the wonderful coda, and above all, the amazing, dark, mysterious atmosphere make this an all-time classic. In a just world, it would be a classic rock staple on the level of A Stairway to Heaven or Freebird. The song's lyrics are another part of the Imagino suite that we mentioned as part of Subhuman. This time, they're about the character of Imaginos, now known as Destinova for some reason, talking about his role in history. They're basically nonsense, but they do sound cool, so I'll give them a pass on it. They fit the atmosphere perfectly, even if they make very little literal sense. And they would make even less sense if you didn't know about the history of Imaginos, which listeners at the time would not have. This was the other song from this album that was eventually re-recorded in 1988 for the Imaginos album, and there are no words for how badly they butchered it. Flat what? Hey! Hey, hey! <laughs> yeah, uh, stick to the Secret Treaties version. Although, uh, there is a killer live version of it available on the Some Enchanted Evening Live LP. There's also an awful music video for this version, featuring an unspeakably pretentious introduction by longtime Blue Oyster Cult fan Stephen King. I would recommend checking it out because it's... it's astonishing like how stupid it is <laughs> well one thing i miss a little about listening to music as a teenager is how mysterious music was songs were basically made of mystery you didn't really know where they came from probably space all you really had to go on was the record itself and whatever was written in the liner notes so you just stare at the gatefold cover while the album played and wonder what it all meant and then later on you find out that the answer to that question is usually not a whole lot. They're just, you know, songs written by people, usually in their 20s. And this this is a song, though, that, that almost brings that feeling back for me. It sounds like it's about so much more than it probably is. And it's probably better the less you know about it. The, the lyrics are vague enough that you can just imagine whatever you want it to be about. And it, it kind of feels like whatever's going on is really in the words of the song anyway. What's going on is all in that really haunting melody that the whole song is based on. And it uh, it reminds me of a little of uh, A Day in the Life in that regard, a little. Not so much in terms of what the what it sounds like, but just like it's got that feeling of there being something lurking inside the song that the words aren't really telling you about. There's that, that whole long verse section in the beginning feels like another one of those like secret passageways I was talking about before. But it's even more mysterious this time around. It almost reminds me of... Uh, like, if you've ever seen uh, Suspiria, the original version. <laughs> yes. This song reminds me of parts of Suspiria a lot. But uh, even if you're not as taken in by the mystery of it all as I am, it's it's still just a really well-written, well-constructed song. It's got a really satisfying build. 
and it's bound to impress you just on those strengths alone. Yeah, I really do love that like long slow. It's like two minutes yeah. of, at the beginning of the song where it just slowly builds before it really takes off. And like, I wouldn't cut a second out of absolutely that not because it it's all absolutely necessary to build to the like climax that they're shooting for. Yeah. So speaking to the wide range of opinions on this album, Ooh. I think every song on this. Well, I think every song on this album is at least good. But this is actually one of my least favorites. I don't really. I, yeah, there, there, there's huh. something perfect and sculpture like about it. Less of the rough edges of the other songs. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it might. It also might just be the association with Metallica, who I'm just not a fan of. I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they make the they make like the whole like process and act of recording music seem so arduous and joyless. And I I know there's a whole like psychological <laughs> element to that, but. If we do a Metallica episode, I will not be on it. I'm I'm just going to say that. But my mom has memories of seeing this song live. She was also into BOC, and her main memory of seeing them live was hearing this song while lasers pierced through clouds of weed smoke. (laughs) The 70s. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to like have a Scott Stapp versus 311 style throwdown uh, about this song. I don't I don't dis, I don't dislike it. I just uh, I don't know. Like, uh, I mean, I see why everybody else does. But for whatever reason, like subhuman dominance and submission, the, just those ones really get me going a lot more than this one does. But uh, I specifically like didn't go last because I didn't want to end on a bummer note. Dan, what do you think of the song? Sucks. <laughs> Damn. No, I'm definitely team uh, Phil and Mike on this one. Uh, And I really can't add to what they've said because that was that was beautiful, Mike. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's funny. This one musically, it kind of sounds like a sequel to the song. And then came the last days of May off of the debut kind of a similar vibe to them. And I actually think that's maybe an equally good song, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, this is the masterpiece this is great and rich is wrong (laughs) we'll see i'm tucked away there in position number three on the panel nobody will even remember (laughs) right in the middle (laughs) thing is like this is a song that like though obviously i love it um i can imagine how it could be people's least favorite songs on this album because i've heard other people say that this is their least favorite song on the album because Hmm. it is a it is a little bit of an outlier it doesn't sound really like the other songs on the record very much yeah so, like, even though I love it, like, I can totally see this song, you know, being somebody's least favorite song on the record. Wrong in opinion as that is. <laughs> yeah, I don't go into songs trying to be contrarian. I've, I've left that side of myself behind. I, I like I sat down and I was like, oh, come on, I'm, I, I've got to love this one. But just just something about it just doesn't move me like uh, like it does other people. But I mean, yeah, I can see like mathematically that it's a great song. <laughs> You gotta have, you gotta like have the the windows open and the curtains billowing, and like light some candles. Kind of a lighter in the air. <laughs> That's true. My head, my headphones, like sitting with my dog on the couch, probably isn't like. The <laughs> you gotta, you gotta set the atmosphere. The, li- the lyrics are a little bit uh, more pretentious than the ones about doing it to your daughter on a dirt road back on a uh, career of evil. <laughs> yeah, those resonate a little bit more. <laughs> Well, if if we're done with the whopping eight songs on Secret Treaties, Phil, why don't you tell us uh, your final thoughts on the album and Blue Easter Cult in general? It's an awesome album. Like, I think it's um, far and away Blue Easter Cult's best album. And the one that's probably the fullest realization of what the band was originally like formed to do. 
because after this, you know, they didn't get bad right away. They had some less good albums, but they kind of moved more in a direction of being a normal band. Whereas this was the peak of them being a weirdo band. And it's just an album that I think, you know, whatever you think of, you know, Blue Oyster Cult's radio hits, like you should check this album out. Like, I think it's an album that belongs in everybody's collection. Yeah, this is uh, probably up there for me. I mean, really, there's about four albums that I would really go with on BOC. And this is pretty even for me. Uh, uh, But if you're going to pick one to start with, I would would say this is probably as good a place as any because it's just probably the most consistent um, and the most kind of just straight ahead rocking one. But uh, yeah, you really can't go wrong with, with this one. This, I just think, is the best example. You know, it might not have any hits on it or anything like that, but I think it's the best example of everything that just made Blue Oyster Cult such a cool, weird band. And uh, they were a band that never sounded like anybody else. Nobody has ever really sounded that much like Blue Oyster Cult. A lot of people have been influenced by Blue Oyster Cult, but uh, nobody's ever really sounded like them. And uh, I think this album is among the better examples of what made them the unique band that they were yeah this album is a neat little case study of what happens when rock critics like specifically just set out to design a band uh, at a really interesting formative moment in rock criticism um i just wish any of their other albums were nearly as good but with that in mind uh phil what are your other favorite albums by blue oyster cult we've mentioned them several times but uh the first three albums they made uh blue oyster cult tyranny and mutation and secret treaties are all excellent all three of them should probably be in your collection. After uh, Secret Treaties came out, because it was the 70s, uh, the band released a double live album, On Your Feet or On Your Knees, uh, which isn't exactly a classic album, but if you want extended live versions of cuts from the first three albums, along with a couple of new songs, you know, there you go. It's worth your time. I saw like a contemporary thing with uh, Sandy Perlman where he said that the band set out to one up uh, the Who's live at Leeds and succeeded, which uh, no, they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a good live album, but it's not essential. Um, Their fourth studio album, Agents of Fortune, is again, it's the Don't Fear the Reaper album, and it's well worth hearing as well. It's totally different from the first three, but it's packed with interesting, cool songs. So after that album, uh, Blue Oyster Cult get way more inconsistent. Like, they didn't get outright bad for a while, but their next several albums were a bit iffier. The only album they made after this period that I would call a must-own is 1980's Cultosaurus Erectus, which was a conscious retreat back to their early sound, and it features some of the band's all-time best songs. Doesn't have any hits, but there's tons of cool music on it. And there's an unbelievably dated song about Ayatollah Khomeini. (laughs) (laughs) But it does have Black Blade, which is just one of their best songs of all time. You might know it from the radio.
lyrics by uh, fantasy author Michael Moorcock. Also of Hawkwind fame. Yes, who also wrote lyrics for Hawkwind, because there was a thing with like 70s hard rock bands getting like sci-fi authors to write their lyrics. (laughs) The 70s were awesome. So the follow up to this album, uh, Fire of Unknown Origin, which you might know as the one with Burnin' for you on it, is a pretty similar album to Cultosaurus Erectus, but it's a bit weaker. If you want to explore the Bloister Cult catalog further than that, uh, you're on your own. There are some pretty good albums in this period, like Spectres and Mirrors, but basically everything after um, Fire of Unknown Origin is uh, pretty terrible, such as Imaginos and the ludicrously titled Club Ninja. (laughs) Oh, I'm a member of that club. (laughs) Aren't we all? I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction because I don't just want to repeat the first four Blue Oyster Cult albums are good. Even though I probably should, you should hear all those. Uh, But I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction and say uh, that if you like what Blue Oyster Cult do on this album, but you wish they'd ratchet the tempo up a few notches, I'd recommend checking out a band called Radio Birdman. They were were an Australian proto-punk band who were really strongly influenced by Blue Oyster Cult to the extent that they called their first album... Radios appear. You have to say it like that. Yeah, <laughs> you have to say it like that. That that album seems to go in and out of print at will, but I've got a compilation called The Essential Radio Birdman that includes most of that album, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really good. I believe it's Radio Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. That's their full name. I'm actually not familiar <laughs> with this band. I'll have to check them out. You should. Yeah, they're great. I should, I should actually put a clip in here of a song called uh, Aloha Steven Dano. Which is yeah, that's a good the best song ever about watching Hawaii Five-0. That's kind of funny because actually I think it was Mike's recommendation connecting them to BOC that got me into Radio Birdman. Oh, really? So thank you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you're welcome. <laughs> okay, well, well, we're done with Secret Treaties. That was an interesting and short album. So next episode, Mike is going to be taking us through The Dreaming by my girlfriend, Kate Bush. Uh, my, wa- uh-uh. my wife and I have... <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> my wife and I have an understanding. Oh, I can't wait for this one. I love this album so much. Oh, it's great. But let's uh, let's roll some credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream Secret Treaties and other albums by Blue Oyster Cult at your local Sam Goody, as well as the usual suspects such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon. But if you buy the album through the Amazon affiliate link on our website, discordpod.com, you'll get a great album and you'll support our podcast. So why not? Also check out discordpod.com for show notes and a preview of upcoming albums. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. Follow me at Zone Trope. Follow Phil at PA Maddox. 
follow Dan Dennis Watkins. And Mike isn't on Twitter. He's being chased by the neighbor's cat. Editing is by me, and special thanks to Mike for production duties. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. Wonderful.